Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 62 for the week of October 5th, 2014. On this week's show, we're going to talk about skunk beer, penis cancer, uterus transplants, caffeine underwear, and more. Yay! Yay! Kind of a soft science week, but yeah. we're going, no pun intended with the penile cancer. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh man, we're already, we're already on the deep end of the, the pool here when oh, yeah. a, a oh, yeah. sentence in. So on this week's show, it's just going to be Christian Copley, Salem, and I. Me. Me. Christian is a graduate student in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Something like that. Something like that. Uh, soon to be a PhD candidate. Uh, when are you hoping to take your qualifier? Uh, this week? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> you would not be on the show if it was this week. Yeah, no. Um, I, I don't know yet. I have a lot of shit to work out, so hopefully before December. Yeah, The um, so... Uh, Many of you are familiar with this, many of you are not. If you are going to get a PhD in a, uh, what I'll call a hardcore science at least, um, uh, physics, chemistry, uh, biology, math, whatnot, you have to, um, you have, there's two phases to it. A, you have to, uh, it's normally anywhere between a four and a seven year program if you're unlucky. And, about two years into it, you are you do a qualifi- qualifying examination. Even though you've made it into graduate school, you aren't technically uh, um, a PhD candidate until you pass this test. And it, the test can be a hundred different things depending on your university, your department. Uh, sometimes it's a formal written test where you have uh, basically they can t- quiz you on anything you've learned in the last however six years of college. Uh, for us, it's not quite that. It's equally as grueling, but it, it's a different thing. We write a full-on grant like we're submitting it to the NIH, and and it cannot be specifically on what you're researching. So you have to research a new topic. You have to do the background. These grants are very involved with background research, proposed plans, troubleshooting. Their 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 length. They normally have sixty to eighty references. They're 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 pretty involved and. You submit that to your committee, who's responsible for deciding if you get your PhD, and they they quiz you on it. They basically read it, they tear it apart, they they ask you, well, why didn't you consider this? And you have to know it like the back of your hand. And within this this two hour presentation you're giving with questions, they will often they can ask you anything they want about the technique. Well, you're looking at at immunofluorescence here, so explain to me exactly how uh, how how whatever you want to call it, uh, fluorescence works chemically. And so you, you can build in these techniques. And so it's a chance for them to really probe you however they want. And and at the end of it, it's it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Yes, you can continue on or B, thank you for your two years. Uh, if they're very kind, they'll give you a master's. If not, they can just tell you it's time to leave. So it's a very yeah. stressful thing for people. Yeah, most of the time you get a master's degree if you flunk your qualifier which is awesome like i feel bad for the people who actually genuinely are great students and worked very hard because they just wanted a master's so on the one hand you've got these great students who got beyond their bachelor degree and then other and then the other group is well yeah you you uh you suck you need to go but here's a master's anyway yeah yeah good times 
And honestly, I've I've met a lot of the people who've passed their qualifier, so I'm not overly concerned. <laughs> people do. I've known a couple people who were pity were taken on them, and they were asked to retake their qualifier, uh, given a second chance. But most of the people I know are are pretty excellent students, and it's not so much of a concern. Um, Mm-hmm. It's as much about being able to convey an idea as it is anything else because if you can't write, if especially if English is not your first language, this is a very challenging thing because mm-hmm. it's it's you have to convey uh, a story. You have to say, this is why I want to look at this. This is my path to do it. And you have to write in a manner that, that isn't, people don't want to claw their eyes out. So it can be challenging. Yeah. Not a problem for Christian. Maybe. Nobody is concerned <laughs> for him. Oh, so, my gosh. <laughs> You doing anything fun this week? Um, no, I didn't do a whole lot of fun stuff. I just sort of sat on the couch. <laughs> nice. Um, you- I had exams and crap, so I was studying my butt off until um, until Friday, and then I was like, "Okay, I'm done." Woo! So I just laid on the couch. Christian and I are both in a class called Neuro Effector Mechanisms, which is basically how neurons work and all that fun stuff. And this Christian doesn't isn't able to say this, but I am, which is this is my last class probably for the rest of my entire life. So there's three <laughs> tests this term. So basically I'm on the countdown, three, two, one, two, where I will never in my life have to take another test, which is uh, is weirdly awesome. Um, it, makes, <laughs> it makes studying for these tests not nearly as bad when you know that you'll never do it again. Yeah. Go team. It, yeah, the, I'm, I'm over it. I'm over the whole idea of studying for exams. Yes. I yeah, I find myself getting very annoyed when I have to study for the exams. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, totally. anyways, uh, we went to the have – you, have you heard of the World's Strongest Man competition? Yes. Well, they had the America's Strongest Man competition here in Reno yesterday. Actually, it's going on today too. Oh, jeez. Uh, and it's just people lifting very, very heavy things, and uh, and it's actually pretty fun to watch. We went there yesterday, and it was uh, – yeah, it was fun. Nice. Yeah. And my Oregon Ducks lost. It's that time of year oh, again for me to bring oh. up football that nobody cares about. <laughs> I was going to say, is that hockey? No, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> just uh, the only thing I'll say on it is we were number two in the country playing an unranked team uh, at home, which means that it should be like 62 to 7 should be the score. <laughs> And we all the advantages lost. We had every advantage on the planet. They were also they also beat us last year. Uh, so this is University of Arizona, and uh, there's there's no reason they should be beating us. And they've absolutely owned us both years. And wow, kudos for them. Uh, but what the f, man? Like we're number two <laughs> in the nation, and we just got we don't deserve to be number two. I am actually ashamed of my team. Like, like take it away. I don't. We're probably going to be like number eight after this week, and uh, we don't deserve to be number two. So I'm in a personal shame cycle right now. <laughs> That's fantastic. Good times. And then, oh, yeah, you and I were talking about before. We'll move on to science here real quick here. Uh, we're only seven minutes in. Is next year my family and I are going to Japan for a week, which should be a lot of fun. And it's going to be a little family trip. We're going to ride motorcycles around and all this sort of stuff. And... My brother kind of said, well, we should each, for the next year, each month we should watch one Japanese film and uh, to kind of, you know, just become culturally 
aware a little bit of where we're going and just a fun thing to do. It's only once a month. So this week, month, or today I was going to watch uh, Gojira, which is the original 1954 Godzilla. And uh, for those of you who don't know, which is probably all you, uh, Christian is is uh, borderline clinically obsessed with Godzilla. Is that accurate? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We'll go with that. <laughs> he knows we'll say it- it's... A- an unhealthy obsession. Okay. Uh, but it turns out they're like randomly, I'm like, I'm going to watch it today. And he's like, they're playing it live uh, or not live. I mean, they're playing it on the big screen here in Reno for like one day only or something. And Literally, so, it's just today at three o'clock. <laughs> that's it. So we might have to go see it on the big screen. Why not? I don't know. Yeah. So my brother is obs- really enjoys the original Godzilla. What's so special about this one? Um. Well, it's the original, you know, and it's, it's awesome. But I, I was talking earlier about how um it it still looks like crap even on blu-ray um i have the movie you know in pretty much every format that they've ever produced it in um including bootlegs from a hundred years ago and everyone was like oh hey it's gonna be on blu-ray it's gonna be so exciting and then you get the blu-ray and it still has these little scratches all over the the print and it's not actually because they were um lame in their restoration of it it's because it's actually on the negatives <laughs> um what they did is to get the special effects because it's 1954 right they didn't have industrial light and magic like there was no weta to do all their special effects so what they were doing is working with hand puppets and a guy in a rubber suit you know it's pretty much standard godzilla fare and the way they would do it is they would film the human actors on a on glass plates and then they would put the plates back in and film the Godzilla portion in the background of that. So it's almost it's they're superimposing it on these glass oh. slides. Well the glass slides are scratched from use. <laughs> so there's literally the film is destroyed. Like there's no there's no way to remove those scratches except to go in by hand and edit every frame of the film. Which people have done, but the fact is, is that do you even really want that? Like it's part of it's part of the history of it. It's like it is. It's like when uh, Lucas ruined the Star Wars redos, right? <laughs> I hate that so much. But didn't he? I, I I know very little about Star Wars. We've talked about this, but didn't right. he go in and add like modern effects to the original films? Yeah, and everyone hated it, right? Yep. So they spent stupid. millions of dollars making a film worse. Right. Well, because one of the joys of Star Wars was how incredibly badass it looked for being from the 70s. I mean, the film came out like two years after I was born. I actually saw the original Star Wars in the theater when I was like three <laughs> at a drive-in with Winnie the Pooh. I, I'm you not kidding. you remember this? Yeah. My parents took me to the drive-in to see Winnie the Pooh and Star Wars as a double feature. If that's not bizarre, I don't know what is. But um, it, it was brilliant and it looks great. Even today, you could watch the original Star Wars and you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, that looks totally lame. Like, almost all of the effects hold up. Which is insane. It is. It's nuts. And he went in and he screwed with that to try to make it look... All it does is look busier. He just added things in. Uh Uh-huh. Which is terrible. Like, why would you do that to a film that not only aged well, but was the shining moment of special effects, the beginning of the modern era? And he went in and he literally destroyed it. Um, The original versions, I think, are going to be released on blu-ray um but yeah just, it, 
just a, a scant 40 years later. Yeah, you know, it, it's a terrible, it's a horrible thing that he did to them. But, yeah, so I guess you're right. I don't want them to go in and hand remove all of the little scratches. They don't ruin the movie, and they're not that annoying. But you can just tell it was made in the 50s. This week on Film History. Right, yeah. and that it was done with hand puppets. I mean, like, you know. Isn't this a science podcast? <laughs> <laughs> it's science fiction, whatever. It is, oh, good, I like that. Well, perhaps we should just move on to, then, Science Blast. <laughs> Science. <laughs> I, I think that's better than average, to be honest with you. <laughs> it is. That was, that was incredible. I'll, I'm going to kick it off because i got a few small things here. As I said, this is a soft science week. I don't have any hardcore molecular biology, but I do have a suite of fun little stories here. First of all... <laughs> Uh, this is from a from a YouTube video from the American Chemical Society, which uh, kudos for them. There, it's a very uh, stuffy sounding name, the American Chemical Society, and what they do is largely uh, ignored by most people. But they are, uh, uh, as you can imagine, their work is critical to just about everything. And they made a little video here about uh, why your beer gets skunked. Do you know this, Christian? I do not. Yeah, so it's a pretty simple story here. So you've got. Uh, it's called photochemical bleaching is the term they use here. And when you boil hops, which just gives you the bitter flavor in beer, it releases something called iso-alpha acids from the glands of the hop flower. And those break down, and they, or they, I'm sure they just get released into the beer, and, and when you have, that gives it the classic bitter taste, you would imagine. So when you have that in the presence of other proteins that naturally are in the beer here. There's lots and lots of proteins, and they call them, they euphemistically call them sulfur-containing proteins because they don't want to get all sciencey because they know people don't get that. Pretty much all proteins are sulfur-containing. Yeah, uh, I was about to say that. <laughs> I, it would be very, anything more than probably 20, maybe 20 or 40 amino acids was probably going to have sulfur in it. Um, and so uh, your primary source of sulfur-containing um uh, whatever you call it, what's the word I'm looking for? Proteins, big word, is uh, is cysteine. Uh, cysteine is an amino acid. It's got an SH group. It's this functional group on there. And that's what I study. I study cysteines, and there's, they're everywhere. So anyway, so you've got alpha, alpha, iso-alpha acids from the hops. You've got sulfur-containing proteins, which is everything. And you add light to the equation. Now, what's interesting about this is generally – for most chemical reactions to be kind of catalyzed by light, it normally requires like UV light because UV light's higher energy and, and most of these reactions take that higher energy for, for the light to actually help them interact. But this happens with just normal visible light. What the You even get from a, a, a light bulb, just normal visible light. When that hits the beer in the presence of, of these two things, it breaks down that iso-alpha acid, and you get something called 2-methyl-2-butene-1-thiol. Now, if you've ever taken organic chemistry, uh, like I did a million years ago, I love looking at this chemical because it's one of the few organic chemistry molecules that pretty much anyone who spent two weeks in organic chemistry can make. 3-methyl-2-butene-1-thiol. It's like, ah, oh, that's simple Simple organic chemistry. I love that. Most of these are a hundred, you know, they're a hundred characters long, and you could never hope to redo them. But this is a very simple chemical. So that's your byproduct. And as it happens to be, three methyl two butene one thiol is exactly what comes out of a skunk's behind uh, oh. gland to make stinky stuff. 
So, and it's, it's, it's phenomenally potent. You can sense this at one part per billion. And wow. they had a nice little analogy on the YouTube uh, video, which I'll, I'll put on our, our show notes to give them credit here, and you should go watch it, is that uh, one eyedropper in an entire Olympic-sized swimming pool, uh, and you could easily detect this scent. That's uh, pretty strong stuff there. Wow. Yeah, and and uh, fun, uh, kind of a fun side fact here is that iso-alpha acids, they actually are uh, bacteriostatic, so that means that they basically kill bacteria, and they have, have effects on gram-positive bacteria found in beer. So beer is naturally resistant to many t- forms of bacteria, and it's because of these iso-alpha acids. And if you think of, um, like, uh, uh, back in the day, so very short story, <laughs> Uh, IPA, which is my favorite beer, stands for India Pale Ale. The problem that the British ran into is that everyone loved their beer. People in India really wanted beer. But by the time they got in their ships, went down past Cape Horn in Africa and up to India, the beer would go bad because it was very hot. It was humid. And and, and the bacteria would take over. And the beer tasted like crap by the time it got to India. So their solution was up the hops. Uh, so they have a lot of iso-alpha acid to push down the bacteria and also increase the alcohol, which will push down the bacteria. And then they added a little bit more sugar, which increased the specific gravity, which will also have uh, a f- a negative effects on bacterial growth. And the result is, is that you have a stronger beer that's more hoppy and you have India Pale Ale. The intent was that when it got to India, they were going to rewater down the beer. But sailors have a propensity to drink beer when it's on ships, and uh, they developed a taste for it, as well did the people they were delivering it to. And so you had this whole new form of beer that was really only meant to be a transport-style beer, and then it was supposed to be watered down at the end. But, hey, people like their beer, so that's IPA for you. Nice. Nice. And I actually, the if you were on the English Channel during the 16th century, Every single man got one gallon of beer per day on a ship. That was their daily ration was a gallon of beer. Jesus. I know. You know, I don't like I don't like IPAs. I'm just going to admit that out loud because, you know, I can't. You're not alone. And I, but I like liquid bread. Like I like my beer really dark, black, flavorful and crazy. Um and I've never had that kind of beer go bad, but then I usually throw it away if I open it for any reason. Um, but yeah, I don't like, I don't like light fluffy beers, like, you know, IPAs. Those yeah. are, those are fluffy, <laughs> fluffy. They're <laughs> strong, fluffy. but fluffy. And that's why yeah, I like they're them. Fluffy. They're, they're the yin and yang. You kind of get a little sweetness, but they're also really hoppy and bitter. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, and they also dispel the myth that, uh, heat doesn't skunk beer. Really? Uh, yeah. A lot of people think if you leave it in a warm car or now it will make the beer taste not as good. It gives it kind of a cardboard taste, but that's, uh, through oxidation, not through this, uh, this light mediated reaction with the iso alpha acids. And when I was looking up to see the chemistry behind this, trying to go a little deeper into it than just mm-hmm. the video, yeah. they actually sell three methyl two butene one thiol hundred nanogram capsules uh, that are it says certified beer flavor standard used to train professional beer tasters to recognize and scale the intensity of light struck character. Light struck being the 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 term they're using for the for the skunk beer. Um, so uh, you can actually buy this stuff, and they'll add it to beer in very small levels so that if you're a professional brewer, you can learn what skunk beer tastes like and be able to discern it. Huh. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Well, you figure, too, if you, a lot of you know beer, if you leave it 
in the car is going to get light exposure. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the bottle blocks any of the appropriate wavelength, but yeah, when it seems it, like. And I, I didn't say this, but you, you can make a quick inference that if the reason we almost all beer comes in brown bottles, except for crappy Corona. I don't. I'm sorry if you like Corona; it's a bad beer. It just is well marketed. Uh, <laughs> but the reason almost all beers in dark brown bottles is to prevent this this light struck. Um, characteristic from happening here. So, yeah. uh, but they said even even dark brown bottle beers will let a lot left enough light in through time that it's a problem. So you should just keep your beer in the dark. You're fine. Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable reasonable thing. So uh, I want to hear about penis cancer. Oh well, um, penis cancer sucks, and that's the end of my story. And I'm done. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. No, um, so. The problem of, and the, I'm going to talk about a couple of things that are going to make some people cringe, but one of the problems that people face when they have some sort of traumatic injury to their genitals or penile cancer or some sort of biological um, birth defect, there's actually, and this is going to sound crazy, but there are people who are born with non-functioning genitalia, and that's both men and women. But a lot of these people are born with penises that are literally, I think it's less than an inch when erect, is like the cutoff for what's considered to be a, a biological dysfunction. That's about average, right? Yeah, that's fine. You're fine, Scott. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> so one of the ways that they've dealt with this in the past is you know, plastic surgery, reconstruction, um, Back in the early 2000s, and I, this is just a random story that I found, some guy grew a, a new penis for somebody on their arm <laughs> in Russia. Okay, so what happened was the dude was born with one of those um, birth defects that gave him a really dysfunctional, non-functioning, basically a, a nub. And so he, the doctor cut that tissue out and then grafted it to his arm to get it to grow a new penis out of his arm. I don't know the specifics Is this in the of it. Chernobyl province? Probably. Well, it was in Russia, so yeah, I'm sure. But um, so basically they would grow these organs and most of the time they weren't functional, they were just aesthetic. Um, and the way they would get them functional is they would basically just put something in there that you could pump up. Like literally a penis that pumps. <laughs> and <laughs> I've seen this. I, I, don't they? No, I'm, I'm, sounds like I'm being crude here, but I'm not. Right, go ahead. My understanding is they actually like built one of the pumps into like a ball. So you squeeze a ball and it pumps it up. Correct. A, a fake ball, right? Inside yeah. your fake sack. Real right. sack. Yeah. Real sack, fake Replace ball. one of your, okay. your real balls with a fake ball that you could literally pump yourself up with. Yes. Which... For any dude who has ever been engaged in any active sex life, that might not be the worst thing on the planet. You know, you just if you're if you're nervous or you're you know you're in the middle of a, a sports game and you're trying to do it in the stands, you just pump that shit up. <laughs> Nerves are done, right? You're fine. You know, uh, and what guy hasn't wished for that ability at least once in their life? They get high points for creativity of anything. Yeah, and actually, some of these are used to treat erectile dysfunction that's caused by some sort of dramatic biological issue okay um, it's not always just like blood flow can be restricted for you can have blocked arteries and there's all kinds of things that can restrict blood flow in the penis and cause erectile dysfunction that has absolutely nothing to do with anything mental um like you know trying to have sex at a 
basketball game. But um, so the the getting organs re remaking organs is sort of a big thing right now. Um, we've talked about it before, you know, rebuilding hearts on scaffolds and you know making lungs. I think it was three D printed livers. We talked about a while ago. Mm-hmm. This group that I'm about to report on is actually one of the first people to re-engineer a complete working bladder and implant it. Wow. Um, They've put them in, there's like 30 or 40 people who have had these bladders implanted in them. Um, And they're fully functional. And they were were created um, by this lab group, this Wake Forest Baptist team. Okay, so that makes this plot a little bit more interesting because the Baptist team has now turned their 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 tissue engineering prowess on wieners. (laughs) Okay, so the Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center has started re-engineering erectile tissue. And this isn't just I mean, I can you know, you can fashion a penis out of clay and stick it on something and it's going to look like. A penis, but does it function? Does it get hard? Does it get soft? Does it, you know, can it urinate? All of these things. For for something that's so simple looking on the outside, it's a pretty complex organ in the middle. And having been through anatomy where you got to look at them on cadavers that have been split in half, there's a lot of stuff going on inside there. And one of the most important parts of it is this spongy material that is what that's what expands during an erection. It's this spongy stuff that sort of lines the, the edges of the penis, and it, it fills with blood, and it expands, and it's spongy, and it creates an erection. That is not an easy thing to replicate um, artificially, and it ends up not working without the pump or whatever. So what they've done is they've taken rabbits, and they have created... Um, these penile constructs that can then grow and and create a functioning working penis on this rabbit. Um, it, I don't exactly know if they're producing human penises on the rabbits or rabbit penises on the rabbits because it does it just keeps using the word functional erectile tissue. Uh-huh. Um, but so basically, what they're doing is they're using cells um, in a two-step process to create this three-dimensional scaffold that allows the cells to develop into um, what they're looking for. It takes about a month um, after you implant the scaffold for this penile tissue to start organizing itself and ha- connect with the vascular structures. Um, so basically, they hold like six times as much muscle cells as previous attempts at this. So they've really gotten it to where um, the the tissue is spongy and the muscle cells are set up appropriately and the vascular set up appropriately so you can actually get blood flow through it and it will respond to what's everybody's favorite neurotransmitter nitric oxide yay which it, means it will naturally erect correct and nitric oxide is a smooth muscle relaxer which if you don't know exactly how the penis works it sounds contradictory that right. nitric oxide relaxes things and you get a boner um but the way that works is you have a muscle that's literally cutting off the blood flow to those spongy areas in your penis. And what happens is when you get aroused, you get a release of nitric oxide in the, um, the epithelial cells or endothelial cells of the vasculature, causing that muscle to relax and open up and the blood rushes in. 
And then what happens is the blood pressure starts to build because as you fill the balloon, the back pressure is going to increase. So what happens is the back pressure pinches off those blood vessels. So now the blood can't escape. So you've actually, erections are self-maintaining to a degree. So you get the relaxation of the muscle that lets the blood flow through, and then the increase in size actually pinches back down those blood vessels so the blood can't rush back out again. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'd get hard and soft and hard and soft and hard and soft, and it would be stupid. So it's kind of interesting that um, they're able to use all of these. Basically, they're implanting these cells on their little scaffold that they made, which is sort of the way that tissue and organ engineering is going. Um, they're taking scaffolds, and it doesn't go into detail about what their scaffold was, but they basically took endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells from the animals and created a new penis for them out of it, using it as a scaffold. So it's kind of cool, and it actually works. So good for rabbits. Yeah. They actually mated and had babies. Go erections! Woohoo! So there's stinky clothes. Stinky clothes. That's what I want to talk about. All right. Let's talk about stinky clothes. All right. Again, soft science week. Uh, not a lot of hard science here. But, uh, so Rachel McQueen at the University of Alberta just published a paper in the International Journal of Clothing Science and Technology. Uh, and this involves one of our favorite antibacterial agents known as? Uh, non- triclosan? Triclosan. <laughs> um, so essentially... That they were looking at a lot of clothes these days. If you look out them, are touting anti-odor, antibacterial kind of uh, uh, properties to them. Uh, the in, the idea is that if they are antibacterial, it's going to prevent odor, and therefore you can wear your clothes longer with them stinking less. Win-win, right? Oh, yeah. Well, what they did is they analyzed. They did a couple different things. They analyzed the effectiveness of three different textiles coated in what are uh, antimicrobial agents. One was this trick. Losan, triclosan, triclosan, yeah, uh, zinc pyrithione derivative, and a silver chloride titanium dioxide compound. Now, silver chloride and titanium dioxide have long been known to be antibacterial in nature. So they put people, they put the fabric under people's armpits, and they put them on a plastic film for 24 hours. And uh, what they found was is that uh, they were all largely ineffective. Oh. So the when these things are tested in the laboratory um, by using like a, a bacterial swab or something and put on there and they're under very confined uh, conditions, these in vitro analysis, which is just they're taking everything, all the component parts and it doesn't really involve humans and real odors and stuff. And then they found, hey, look, it's, it's knocking down the bacteria. The odor is going away. That's great. But the fact is when you actually use real armpits in real scenarios – there, they found that overall there was a in some of these compounds there was a decrease in bacterial count, but the relative odor, which is gauged by humans, did not go down at all. So uh, the net end is that it doesn't help. You're, you're, <coughs> you're, 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 you're still going to stink with these things. And they actually did it with polyester textiles too. Uh, polyester is notorious for stinking, and uh, they use these uh, bioactive concentrations and of antimicrobial silver chloride and all this sort of stuff, and it's the same exact thing. So, long story short, with current technology, you're, you're still going to stink. Uh, don't pay extra for these things, in other words. <laughs> I, think that, I think that the worst, one of the worst smells that I've ever, that I, I think that can exist, is the smell from clothes left in the washer for like three weeks. 
that has to be the worst smell that exists next to skunks well (laughs) it's moist it's dark it has all of the seeds for the horrible smells which is it's already been on your body for a day yeah and it's just sitting there is it do you know what causes that is that fungus or is that bacteria I would assume it's bacteria. I don't think skin surface fungus is a big issue unless you've got a problem. You know what I mean? But I could yeah. be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. We should look that up for next week. Yes. I will. Sure. Um, so all of that talk, and I have a semi, I have a semi like complicated molecular biology story. <laughs> Do it. All the soft science, and here's some hard stuff. Wow. Lots know. of penis jokes. Okay. <laughs> um, so... We've actually been looking at this in our lab, and um, it's kind of an interesting technology that I think has a lot of potential, but there are problems with it. So um, I want to talk a little about what's called the CRISPR-Cas9 technique, and basically what it's doing is the original idea, sort of, was to create knockout genes, which... Anybody who has tried to do that understands that that's that's a problem. Um, Some genes, you can knock them out in an embryo. You can use molecular biology techniques to eliminate them from the organism entirely. And so it grows up without the gene. It may or may not cause some sort of, you know, physical abnormality, but um, it isn't lethal. Unfortunately, a lot of the really cool genes that really matter, if you knock them out as an embryo, they're lethal and the organism dies. Um, Or if you have a cell line and you knock them out in the cell line, the cell line will die. So we're constantly on the lookout for ways to create um, knockout genes or ways to um, knock genes out after um, birth. Conditionally, there's um, the Crelux system, which I won't go into, but there's a lot of ways to do this. And they're all very, very complicated and time-consuming and a pain in the butt. And especially in a cell line, if you want to create a knockout in a cell line, you want that cell line to keep growing. And we do a lot of things in the lab um, to keep cell lines growing, like telomerization and such. But um, if you do a knockout gene that's lethal to a cell in a cell line, your cell line isn't going to grow. And you, you really need to find a way to um, do these kinds of things quickly and easily without a lot of hoopla. And... They've created this system, which is kind of intuitive, or um, it should have been thought of a long time ago. They're basically, they're hooking an enzyme that cuts DNA with a template for it to stick to the DNA. So um, if you have, let's say, a sequence and you want to cut the DNA right before that sequence, you create a complement to that sequence and you hook those two together. And then when it sticks, that enzyme will cut right where you want it to cut. And creating a double-stranded break in DNA, there's a lot of ways that the DNA tries to repair that because double-stranded breaks are fatal. Um, However, you have these magical mechanisms within your cells to repair that, um, that break. Most of them can cause problems with the gene where the cut occurs. Um, what's called non-homologous end joining is actually what this technique is abusing. And what will happen is the DNA will get chewed away and the ends will then, they'll attempt to sort of fuse the ends and then 
cut them up and re reform them so it'll make a single piece of DNA again, but the letters, the DNA code has been shifted a little bit inside um, to get it to stick. So this is a great way to knock out a gene because if you get a double-stranded break cut in the middle of your gene, the repair, ironically, will kill the gene in most cases. Not all. Rather than um, make something that's horribly wrong, because that's what would end up happening normally, right? Right, right. And so you can do this in the cell line and then, um, and then see what happens. And it doesn't have to go with the cell line. You could do it again in a different cell, and you, know, it, you don't have to worry about the cell line perpetuating the process. You can just redo it. The other thing, too, is... Um, and this is a little more of a complicated biological thing, but you can actually insert a gene using this technique. Um, there's a gene in the human genome, and I can't remember what it's called. It's like Rosa something. That it, It's a site where they put knock-ins, where they add genes to something, because it doesn't disrupt the function of anything. Um, I don't know exactly. They've they studied this, and it's it's pretty common place for people to target to knock in genes. Targeting knock in genes is hard as well. Um, you have to do a whole lot of stuff, and then you sometimes you have to put in you know the the crelock system to get it to splice it in in the middle and whatever. This is a much easier way, and it you it abuses the same sort of DNA repair technology. Um, if you have a double stranded break, what you get is um, the DNA is going to search for a template. And what happens is when, in the original example, the DNA finds a template in the other broken strand. It just kind of fuses them together wherever it fits close, and then it copies in information based on the, the alternative strand. If it has a template, if it has a pre-made stretch of DNA that fits right into where that break went, you can just break the DNA in the presence of the template and your body will use the template because the two strands will bind to the template and then it will fill it in. Huh. And if the template has your sequence that you cut on each end and something else in the middle, you will add what's in the middle between the break. So you will basically insert the gene that you want in the middle of the break. And I've always thought that molecular biology was way awesome and I don't know why I work in a protein lab. But um, this, is, this is an incredible... I think it's an incredible technique. Um, it is, there's a lot of technical issues with it. Like sometimes a single break site won't do anything for you. So they've been using multiple cutters in the same region. So right. you get, you're guaranteed to get a chewed up DNA sequence and then your template can fill in that, that chewed up area. Um, really however you want. That's the beauty of it. You can fill it in however you want. Um, you can do a single point mutation with this. Which that's is awesome. how, Yeah, that's how specific this. Doing single point mutations is basically impossible in a living organism. And it's ridiculously hard in a cell line to get a specific DNA sequence in the genome mutated. And if you do it this way, you can actually replicate it if it's not lethal. Um, so now you have a cell line with your mutation that has your weird phenotype or whatever you know you want to do so it's really kind of awesome to be able to do that 
So this is sort of where molecular biology is going, and it's kind of exciting. And I love molecular biology, and I never get to do it. So boo on me. <laughs> Just design your, your project right. You can, you can always get molecular biology there yeah, somehow. Yeah, I should. Yes. I should. I just have to get away from Craig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's all protein. Yep. So, uh, awesome. yeah, that's super cool. I will do one quick two-minute story, and we'll, we'll put a bow on this episode here. So, uh, continuing my soft science, uh, this is actually more of a surgical uh, thing. I couldn't find the good molecular biology on it. It was hidden. But what they did was insane. Uh, so, uh, a mother, so, well, I should say a woman was born without a uterus, but she actually had functioning ovaries. So, from a... From a clinical standpoint, she she developed normally. There was no issues. She didn't need hormone replacement therapy. This is, by all accounts, a normal woman, except she did not have a uterus. She wanted to have a baby. Uh, this can be problematic if you are without uterus. So yes. they attempted to solve this problem. And what researchers have done, and the surgeon has done, is they did a uterus transplant from a 61-year-old postmenopausal woman. What? into the young 30-something-year-old woman. Um, And not only did it work, she just gave birth last week to a healthy child. Wow. Um, You know, go ahead. The first thing that comes to my mind when you say that is that there is not a significant portion of degradation that occurs in the uterus during aging. Yeah, and so, yeah, this this blows my mind for for a few reasons. so naturally, if you couldn't do an ovarian transplant in a postmenopausal woman because right. they're not working, that's that makes perfect sense. But to Christian's point, when you when you go through menopause, you're you have a one of the hallmarks that most of us are aware of is you have a huge uh, shift in your uh, in your your progesterone estrogen. Um, uh, relationship with, with the the concentrations in your body. As a matter of fact, uh, side note. Um, a lot of these uh, estrogen supplements women take, they come with a higher increased risk of cancer. Um, and uh, and uh, this is because uh, there are estrogen receptor-related cancers. And when women go post-menopause, if you, uh, the reason women get brittle bones after menopause and they have calcium supplements often is because the, uh, your in order for these, your bones to uptake, absorb, and turn calcium into bone, it requires estrogen, and because you don't have estrogen, uh, your bone does not incorporate the calcium, and so people will take uh, not take estrogen not only to feel better, but they will also use it to help make stronger bones, but there's a cancer risk associated with that. That is a really weird tangent to this. Sorry. Um, so the fact is, though, is that your uterus, uh, it's not getting the same um, hormone kind of lavage, kind of the, this treatment that it would during normal. And I would expect, personally, there to be some sort of mild atrophy, as you said, because it's not, it's not being used. They're, you're not having your period anymore. Anytime your body stops doing something for years, I mean, this is a 61-year-old woman, presumably, probably for 5 to 10 years, she's not had a period. You would think there would be some fundamental changes to the uterus itself. But the fact is, is that it worked. So the proof's in the pudding, right? Which means that she is going to experience that uterus. Let's imagine I'm the uterus, right? You, you pull me out of one place, you stick me in another where I haven't done anything, and now all of a sudden I'm menstruating and I'm having cycles and doing all this stuff, which means I'm totally and completely still receptive to all of the hormones that I was receptive to earlier. Right. 
which anybody who knows anything about the way biology works is if you don't use receptors, you, you shut them down. They go away. And obviously there is, there's never going to be no hormones hitting the uterus. There's always going to be some estrogen and some testosterone and some progesterone and stuff. But the levels are ridiculously low, and it's maintaining or able to rebound, I would say. It's probably rebounding the receptors the moment it's flooded with this hormone again, which is just fantastic. Yeah, it uh, shows you the, the plasticity of the body. You know, it can, oh, yeah. really, it can really change when it needs to here. So, and especially the uterus itself, the myometrium, which is the, the heart of what I study, you know, it, it's a muscle. Uh, and if you think of any muscle that doesn't use over time, it will absolutely atrophy. And if she has not had it, when you have a period and you're feeling cramps, it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your uterus contracting in a similar manner to if you were in labor trying to get rid of that uterine lining. And, uh, and so that muscle is being, every month is being exercised. It's being kept fresh and strong so that if you do get pregnant, it's ready to be used again. But again, this person could be a decade without it being used, but yet everything still functions. So super cool. Matter of fact, they yeah. did this like a dozen times. It worked. The, the the body didn't. They were able to. It was rejected sometimes, and in but this is the first time they actually had a healthy baby delivered. And the second half of what makes this whole thing crazy is, you're on you're on immunological suppressants for the rest of your life. Anytime you get an organ from another person, right now until we oh, yeah. until we take care of that. So this lady was on immunological suppressants. She had a foreign, unused, or I should say, uh, uh, kind of mothballed uterus in her. <laughs> Um, got pregnant, had the baby, the baby's fine. Uh, science is magic. And that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. You know, and I, I want to say, I'm sure that there is, there's a portion of luck, um, involved in what happened to her. You know, I, I don't necessarily think that this means that we could just take any uterus and shove it into anybody and it would be fine. Right. Um, but the idea that it can be done is exciting. Like, that's really cool that we can we can figure out how to how to do that it the one of the things that i talked about with the organ regeneration thing is that a lot of times like scott said putting someone else's organ in you is a disastrously bad idea yeah it we use it all the time and it, but it comes with these consequences like you said about the drugs and everything that just can be devastating in and of themselves obviously better than being dead but um being able to tissue engineer an organ from someone's own body, I think, is really... It's gonna going change to change everything. The, yeah, it's going to be the future of that. But it's great to know that we can take an old uterus and use it. That surprises me a little bit. Now, what I didn't find out, I'd be interested to know, now that she's had her baby, I would be willing to bet she's going to get a hysterectomy now. Um, because, ironically, you, you put the uterus in, and it's not a critical organ, and you're going to take it out because... It's a really bad thing to be on immunological suppressants for the rest of your life. Um, oh, yeah. And oh, so yeah. I think the uterus has done its job, and I bet they'll pull it out. Absolutely. I, I would totally agree. Yeah. I agree that that's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah go awesome. team. Sounds good. Uh, man, I'm not going to talk about them this week, so tune in next week because I got a story about caffeine underpants. Um, I read that story. That's freaking rad. It is funny, and uh, <laughs> and don't don't hold your breath though if you're if you're looking for good things to happen from these. That's the the, the spoiler. Yeah, right. And spoiler uh, alert. I had a whole cool story about uh, the fact that we're producing way too many and not enough at the same time. Science graduates, uh, but which is going to be a cool thing. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll wait we'll wait for another time. There's no need to drone on. Yeah, yeah. 
Cool. We're at like 45 minutes. That's yeah. pretty good. I think I'm getting sick. Are you? Yeah, the last couple days I've been feeling feeling a little less than perfect. Well, no kissing me then. I'm just saying. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't make this correlation until just now. But there is an active Ebola patient in the U.S. Oh, yeah. I am starting to feel flu-like symptoms. Has he been here 21 days? No, because this story just came. He was virulent as of like a week ago. Yeah. So, well, if I don't make it, yeah, nice no. knowing everyone. Yeah, that's good times. Way, way to play the Ebola scare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. As I'm dying, I'll, I'm just going to throw a, a, a lit match down in my bedroom so that uh, we can get rid of the virus here. I'll take one for the team. Yeah. Well, right. You know, we should talk about at some point how ridiculously bad our response to this this thing was yeah it's it's on the, it's both you know what i mean there's complete over scare but there's also some genuine reason to be scared uh the media screwed this up the the uh what do you call it not the nsa or nsa nsf uh botched their initial response to this whole thing it's a very interesting story the uh, hospital dropped the ball so hard oh in this in the u.s case hole in the dirt yeah no they dropped that ball so hard it put a hole in the ground yeah we should talk about that next week with sending the guy home who said yeah no yeah we should talk about yeah everything (laughs) they did we should talk about that all right okay well thanks for listening guys uh please go to iTunes and rate us. Really, please. This is me begging. Please rate us on iTunes. Preferably if they're funny. Yes, or or at all. Just something at this point. It's getting a little stale. Uh, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're um, the ba- we're at, we're Beta Sandwich Podcast uh, on Facebook, and we're at Beta Sandwich on the Twitter machine. Tweet. All right, guys. See you cool. next week. We should have Carolina back next week, and uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get Dell. He's a new dad. They're moving houses. He is. Uh, this is not high on his priority list right now, but we will get Dell back. Awesome. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.